Kuasa bro Hai There's not a rule that you have to use the two subs He's, he's the best left back in Canada Without a doubt And hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Third Sub Podcast, episode 167. It's a new month. It is a new month. Somehow it is only the month of June yet. Everything's happened really since, uh, you know, we, we've last chatted on this show. It feels like everything's happened already. It feels like this point of an MLS season, you're kind of, you know, 10 games in, you're finding your feet. Maybe you've played a cup game or two. Uh, you know, you're, you kind of know where, where you are as a team, whereas gotta love MLS. You gotta love MLS. Feels like everything is happening right now. A cup final coming up. Um, lots of huge games in MLS play, etc., etc. Elsewhere, CPL has already also reached its quarter mark, while League One BC continues to be very entertaining through about almost the, the halfway mark, although games are going to slow down a bit as the summer comes up with, of course, the playoffs coming later. But of course, before we dive into all those beautiful topics, I'm your co-host Alexander Gongay Ruzik, joined as always by Samuel Rowan. And Sam, how have you been in the, the last few weeks, which felt like months, I guess, with all the, the soccer that we've missed? Uh, you know, how have you been? Doing well, doing well. Man, it's been so hectic. Just Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, over and over and over. Uh, yeah, we got four matches to to dive into a little bit. It's been hard to find a place to interject ourselves, right? Like it's just such quick turnarounds, so much happening. Uh, but the Whitecaps overall in some pretty good form, uh, working their way up the Western Conference standings, progressing to the Canadian Championship final. So they're, they're kind of hitting all those notes, which is good. Uh, and this allows us, I think, to maybe dive a little bit more into player performances, trends up and down, things to be concerned about, things to be encouraged by, and, and a little less on, you know, the in and outs of what happened in the 85th minute of a, of a given match, which I, I don't think is a bad thing for the show. So as you mentioned, yeah, we'll, we'll talk Vancouver Whitecaps. We'll dive into a little CPL and League One BC on the back end, I just obligatory have to give a little shout out in there for uh, unfortunately Leicester City headed down to the championship. Uh, disappointing for the Foxes, but you know what? I'm I'm already I'm through the grieving process and I'm now excited for some championship football. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and and what a, what a great um, last couple of weeks of the English league season. Uh, really nail-biting match between Coventry City and Luton Town at Wembley in the playoff. My heart always goes out to someone who misses a penalty to send another team to the Premier League. Like, that's just, that that's tough. That one's going to live with you forever. Uh, and, and, you know, we're talking about Canadian Championship upcoming here, so maybe there's penalties of similar consequence upcoming. You never know. But, Alex, where, where do we want to start here in terms of... Uh, the Whitecaps escapades over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, uh, lots to start. I just thought the penalty thing stuck with me again. No, there's going to be no $200 million penalties in Canadian soccer anytime soon, but maybe one day. Um, but as for the Whitecaps, let's just, you know, run through kind of what 
they've been through since we, we last obviously chatted because again it's just been a ridiculously hectic schedule and um again I guess we're early in the season we were talking about the nice rhythm it was Saturday 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 a few midweek games but that was almost out of the white caps own doing it's like oh here's a Champions League game all right fair enough that's uh you're in the Champions League oh here's a you know here's a Canadian Championship game all right it's the cup all of a sudden, these it's these MLS midweek games that have kind of thrown a wrench in everything. Um, but obviously, League's Cup is approaching, and you need to get all these games out of the way. So, obviously, since we last spoke, it was shortly after York, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think that's in an MLS play was near around Dallas, um, as well. The the week prior, just just Anyways, after, just after, well, we know- just after S- FC Dallas, I believe was was the last time we we got together. So since then. Big 2-0 win over Seattle Sounders at home. The Whitecaps heading to Starlight and uh, vanquishing some past demons in the Canadian Championship. And then more recently, an MLS play on the road in St. Louis. Obviously a 3-1 loss there. And then the uh, the hockey score, 6-2 over Houston most recently. Um, so... Yeah, it's it's been up and down. Ultimately, it's it's three wins and and a progression through a semifinal. So, uh, I mean, yeah, do you want to just start with? Uh, I mean, I, I have to say we we were talking about and teeing up Seattle. I think on the last show, and we we both said it was going to be really difficult, right? And that Seattle looked like a team hungry, a team uh, you know looking looking to kind of get back to the the start of their their MLS season and uh, we, we both saw it going the other way, but Vancouver with a really, really mature performance really controlled throughout and, uh, and yeah, impressive, I think kind of trademark early season victory for the, for these white caps. Yeah. I think uh, if you look out among this four game stretch, I think the Sounders one stands out and I think it was just the way they went about it. It was almost that, Obviously, they were focusing on the cup a bit. They rotated, but they also kind of experimented and found something that worked. A bit of, you know, again, Sebastian Berhalter. Uh, we were, you know, we're always starting all sorts of dialogues on players. Well, you know, Sebastian Berhalter, who's going to start a dialogue on on how he's been playing just defensively, continues to be a revelation. Paired up with Andres Kubas in the midfield, who knew playing wingbacks playing a back three, uh, you know, it, it got the most out of wide defenders like a Luis Martins, like a Javane Brown, who, you know, defending hasn't always been easy for them as of late. Let's just say you free them up a bit in a three at the back. They also have some of their best performances of the season. It was, you know, there was a lot to like uh, overall about, about that performance, especially again in a Derby match to win, get a clean sheet as well, get some goals for, you know, a guy like Pedro Vite who, who really needed a, a marker, obviously. Poor Ryan Gold couldn't get that one to fall and up counting his own goal, but he finally gets that that duck off his back, uh, I guess a few weeks later, you can say, because that's how quickly time passes in MLS play, or a week and a half. Um, so yeah, no, that Seattle game was was very good. It kind of stood out as probably the most professional and just no-nonsense performance of, of the lot. The Pacific game also was a very good performance, understandably. They started so well, and then... You know, the Aliamid injury happens and it kind of just 
kind of killed the game for them and understandably so right it was just one where you didn't really blame them for not wanting to play all that much especially you kind of have a tuna lead you're just kind of going through the motions and hoping that nothing happens and you get through the next round so that one you kind of almost put an asterisk um on it for for understandable reasons and then look i mean st louis on the road uh it's something where the road to dialogue is so frustrating because you know as the numbers say as Caleb will, will point out with the, the numbers, it's not like it's a bad thing what they're doing on the road. They're playing well by standard in MLS. Like they're getting, you know, goal differential that other teams would be turning into wins. And again, as you know, someone who loves numbers, you, you look at something like that, you're like, okay, fair enough. But uh, now a calendar year without a road win in MLS, just some of the goals they give away, some of the decisions really like, something where if you're on the road, you struggle on the road. You're notoriously bad on the road, I guess, for a lack of a better way to put it. You don't you don't throw a goalkeeper that you didn't trust to play against York, against Pacific. You don't throw him in against one of the most red-hot attacks of the league, one that's prone to pouncing on mistakes. Like That, that just, for me, felt like... Like I, I would have rather seen Thomas Assault against Seattle at home. Like it's something where play, you know, play him at home, shelter him, give him some confidence versus throw him to the wolves. But that's a whole other talking point we'll get into. So that the road game, it, it was it was funny again. They didn't play objectively that bad, but it's one where you just make some mistakes that you can't make on the road in MLS, and the road woes continue. And then the last one I think was just a bit of chicken soup for the soul. I think that was just a fun game to watch. Uh, Defending was horrific. It was abysmal. It was woeful. Take your pick of an adjective to describe it, but especially the goal outburst for it, for the Whitecaps score a record six in MLS play, and for them to come from five different goal scores, um, you know, especially guys who need goals like a Ryan Gold breaks his duck, Sebastian Berhalter gets one after having so many good looks. Obviously, a goal for Brian White never hurts either. Uh, you add in Pedro Vite getting red hot and scoring another. Julian Gressel, just his his finishing is all of a sudden perked up uh, a bit. He's up to five goals, five assists in all competitions, which is just uh, absurd. I think that was also a bit of a chicken soup for the soul. So overall, it was a bit of a weird stretch. Like you got the professionalism of Seattle on one end, and then you've got the like absolute unhinged, eyes closed, like close off whatever the heck Houston Dynamo was. And then somewhere in between you, you, you had what St. Louis, which is funnily enough, probably one of their more balanced performances, but just mistakes killed them in the end. Yeah, that's a, that's a great breakdown. I'm just going to sprinkle on some little things from those four matches. So you made a great point about, it was someone, it feels so long ago now, I almost forgot about the emergence of the three, five, two and how effective Kubas and Burhalter were together in that midfield. Obviously, we saw some tweaks in the second half against Houston, a bit of a return to that. And we can talk going forward what the right shape is to play, how they get the most out of their defensive players. As you mentioned with Pacific, I think that's, you know, it's just a real shame, obviously, for Ali Ahmed, but also for the spectacle of that match, it took all the air out of it. And there really wasn't a lot to talk about as that matchup went on. And ultimately, this is, you know, a 3-0 relatively quiet performance is probably what everyone was expecting the first time the Vancouver Whitecaps headed over to uh, to Starlight Stadium. And how different things could be if if they'd taken a 3-0 result in that in that first ever matchup. But anyways, you know, time time has gone on and, and things are different now. 
as you mentioned with St. Louis, really like a solid performance in a lot of ways, in some ways a much better performance than their win over Houston. And yet uh, the result goes the other way. That's the perils of playing on the road in MLS. And uh, then we can talk too about the uh, the Thomas Hassall handling the decision to throw him into the fire. And as you said, you know, and as we've already outlined, not a great match against Houston from a from a coaching and technical and tactical perspective, but a, a massively entertaining one. And ultimately, seeing the Whitecaps uh, find their shooting boots and uh, you know score with with a, a good level of clinical play uh, when they needed to was was really nice. And yeah, they've been rewarded overall by uh, creeping up the Western Conference standings. Uh, you know, out of those sort of BS eighth and ninth playoff spots and into a into a legitimate seeding at least for the moment so uh yeah i think a a good stretch and really highlighted in the end there um in that houston performance to me uh, seeing and this is a trend that goes over the last three four matches pedro vite and ryan gold your attacking midfielders starting to feel themselves starting to find some form not just creating good chances but uh pedro vite three goals in his last four mls matches ryan gold his willingness to shoot i think has been a big thing where in that houston match he creates two goals just by taking shots from outside the area and overall it feels like the combination of vite and gold with julian gressel brian white his hold up play what he's able to do um with movement off the ball it's it feels like it's all working at a little bit of a higher rate than it was at the beginning of the season, which is which is saying something because this wasn't a bad attacking team, at least in terms of the underlying stuff right from the get-go. But it does feel like they've hit another gear this last couple of weeks and, and those attacking midfielders in particular. Yeah, I think uh, the big thing has been the play of Vita and Gold. I think that's a great spot to kind of start into when you're you're looking at key storylines i think it's something where look uh, when your best players are your best players you're gonna win games it's it's cheap analysis it's, it's you know nothing galaxy brain but look at this mls is always going to be a star driven league and it's huge for the white caps because again they've been playing for the most part very well across the board you know barring a few names here and there i mean we'll, we'll dive into that as well uh, but you know, for the most part, there's been these performances, especially like a guy like Julian Gressel, who's been so dominant, arguably been the team's best player. He is your, you know, fourth or fifth highest player on, on paper, right? That's something where you want, you know, that sort of overperformance of results. Of course, you, you had Ali Ahmed, who was coming in at MLS next pro salary and giving you well above average MLS player production, right? That's like, again, Simon Betcher, ditto with that. Uh, Brian White, again, you could talk about his struggle. The struggles objectively is evened out now up to six goals, which is somehow just four off the league lead because, you know, no one's Dennis Buonga was going to pop off. And then, of, of course, Champions League has slowed him down by the virtue of him not really playing many MLS games as of late. Um, so I'm sure there'll be a market correction there when uh, LAFC uh, makes up the three or four games in hand they have now on everyone else around them. But for the most part, White's. You know, if, except for the fact he's missed however many big chances it is, has evened out. Like, those are all positive contributions. You don't have to get started on Andres Kubas overperforming his value week in, week out, and showing that he's probably the team's most important player. 
But because of all those factors, they were a very even team. That's why they're kind of bouncing up and down, mid, very mid-table. Some games they'd win, some games they lose. It felt very inconsistent. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of a credit to that. But for them to take that next level, you need your best players to really step up and take over games. And I think this Houston game was a prime example of it because, look, the Whitecaps didn't play that great, especially in the start. Yeah, what's the difference for them in a game like that than going down 2-0 and missing a game where they're like, oh, we've played terrible, that was a big loss, is the best players take over the game and tilt the field, and the Whitecaps end up dominating the second half, getting all those goals. And I think that's kind of almost a sign where you're like, okay, this is a, you know, this shows the A, the level of the Whitecaps players. And again, it shows that this Whitecaps team is good enough that it feels like past iterations of this team again, two nil down after the first half. How many times did we see that last year where these slow starts would kill white cups? Obviously they weren't two nil down, but you know, two one down after scoring so early, it feels like that, that game last year is a draw or even a loss. So for them to go out and absolutely throttle Houston with Vite and Gold kind of leading that charge, obviously Vite with the early goal and just an overall great performance after that. And Gold was, well, he was just outstanding. Uh, you know, got his goal, got his assist, but also was just so lethal and wanting to take shots on, wanting to take passes on. That's what you need from those sorts of players. And it really shows that that can be the difference for, for the Whitecaps in games because Brian White's going to get his chances. Julian Gressel's going to make things happen. But if Vite and Gall can get clicking, it just seems to bring everyone into the whole picture. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, to make this almost like as, as base-level analysis as possible, if we go we go back a month, so this is kind of end of April, beginning of May, and I think of the Whitecaps' attack, it was basically Brian White finishing, and Julian Gressel, Pedro Vite, and Ryan Gauld all trying to just feed him the ball. And that was sort of, or even Luis Martins, Javane Brown whipping in crosses. They were all just trying to feed Brian White the ball. And that was kind of it. Now you've got, you know, Brian White still doing Brian White things, but finishing at a better rate, which was going to happen eventually. But now you've also got Pedro Vite and Ryan Gauld looking for their own shots. Vite, we've talked about this in the show before, he kind of goes as his confidence and his joy for the game goes. And you can see he's having more fun the last couple of weeks. He's He sees the ball rolling into him, like, you know, Brian White lays it off and he finds the top corner because he's enjoying his football, right? And then Ryan Gauld, so much during the first couple months of the season, he'd make those runs towards the edge of the box and he'd always look for the pass, always look for the pass, always look for the pass. Now he's got his head up. He's not afraid to strike it. And so if you're defending against that, if you're Houston, you know, which which one of those two combinations is is easier to defend? You know, if you can just bracket Brian White and go, oh, well, they're going to feed the ball into him. So as long as we shut him down, we'll be good. That's not too difficult to deal with. But when you've got, you know, the quality of, you know, four elite MLS offensive players and their threats to play make and their threats to shoot, that that really changes things and, uh, you know, creates a night where you can, you can massively outperform your XG, right? You only create two, between two and three XG, but you, you bang home six because, um, you know, every time the ball is bouncing in the area, Julian Gressel is just going to thump it into the back of the net and, uh, and, you know, the rest kind of takes care of itself. So 
I just think the the subtle changes they've made offensively, I don't feel like that much of it is tactical. I think it's just more players getting experience together, finding confidence, whatever, the ups and downs of a season. I mean, sometimes it's personal stuff behind the scenes you don't know about. They're they're having a good week, they're having a bad week, but it seems to be seems to be coming together. And maybe we can transition Alex um, to the other end of the pitch <laughs> where where things are trending in a slightly different direction. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think it's something where the goals are falling and all I'll say on that to to end things off is more shots from Julian Gressel, please. This guy's technique is remarkable. It's outstanding. Uh, Pedro Vita as well. Great finish. Ryan Gold has it in him. But yes, defensively, lots of you know, lots of questions for for the Whitecaps, and it's it's tough to to really know what to say about the defense because really, as you, as you look across the season, there's just been like extreme highs and just extreme lows like there's no you know at least consistent trends like there's been first few weeks where it's just horrific and so many cheap goals but thing is it wasn't even that bad because at least it was only like one or two a game and you know for the most part it was just getting battered in the air and you know they're like all right they need to fix their aerial problems we get that all right fine fair enough and then they defended so well for those few weeks kept the clean sheets like okay this is elite you know yohei takaoka Get him the golden glove. I mean, again, still don't don't discount him from this whole discussion. He's kind of arguably been the one consistent shining light in all this. This, this Houston game, for example, is probably 6-5 <laughs> if Yohei Takaoka isn't in the goal uh, for the Whitecaps. But yeah, Takaoka was balling out. All the CBs were were in rhythm. The fullbacks had almost settled down a bit. The center mids were were doing their job. Kubas was being Kubas. And then now you've just on the extreme end of it. It just feels like the, the you know the gears have been taken off, so to speak. It feels like the brakes have just been removed from the car, and it's just zooming down the hill. And it's just kind of like whatever happens happens, and that's not in a good way. Like you have the the Seattle game where you manage to keep a, a lid on things, but you, you go to you know even the Whitecaps versus Pacific. I think it's something where that game in particular. Yes, the Whitecaps won very deservedly. I think it was something where they were the antagonizers over the course of the game but they still gave away a few cheap chances i think they you know the xg battle was uh you know pacific got a fair you know quality amount of chances and hey for what it's worth the, the white cap scored the exact same amount of goals that they scored the first time they went to starlight the difference that they didn't allow four and i think also pacific was you know ruining the fact that they couldn't get one or two of their chances to fall to completely shift the game and you know you kind of see it now against st louis and houston the other end of allowing some of those chances they allowed against like a pacific that they just kind of drop uh for you and it feels like it's a combination of factors really it feels just like how would i put it it just feels like the pieces don't fit if, if that makes sense like it's not like you look at individuals there's pieces that are all there like Andres Kubas is, I mean, again, don't need to talk much about how important he's been to this Whitecaps team. You look at someone like Matias Laborda has, since playing in the middle a bit more, has really stepped up and looked like the sort of player you heard of, you'd seen in Uruguay, but hadn't really seen in the Whitecaps uniform because he's been mostly, you know, blasting up and down the flanks. You add in Ranko Veselinovic for the most part you know, being the sort of solid 1v1 defender he is, Tristan Blackman just being so consistent, 
you know, even, but then you just look at the fullback struggling once again, you look at how all those CB profiles complement each other. There hasn't always been a fit. Like there's just been times where you pair one with the other and they kind of bring the good, but also they bring sometimes the bad out of each other. It just feels like there's a bunch, a bunch of mismatched parts that back there. That's kind of how I'd sum up this defensive run. It just feels like there's, it's like you, you put together a sauce and just one of the seasonings is way off. Like it's very savory. You put in a lot of, you know, you put some salt, put some pepper, you put some paprika, garlic and all this stuff. And then someone just dumped a bit of sugar and you're like, come on, what's, what's this? What's, why'd you, you, you put the wrong sort of flavor. And I don't, you know, it's hard to know what is the, is it maybe a shift to a back three? Is it just taking some of the, you know, alleviating pressure off some of the fullbacks? Uh, you know, just allowing the defenders to kind of do their thing. You go maybe to two in the midfield, uh, you know, and, and then from there go, you know, three, four, two, one is, is you know, something else where it's just purely the center back options. It does feel like a bit of a tweak is required defensively because, look, it's been what, however many games, 12, 15 games of playing with the, the four, three, two, one for the most part, it's been relatively consistent. I think it's clear to say after a point like that, you can observe trends and, by the underlying numbers, I think the white caps are very, they're, I think, allowed around 1.29 XG against, which isn't terrible because that's obviously helped by their dominant stretch, but it's also very mid table. And when you look at their attacking underlying numbers, which are second, continue to be second best in MLS by both XG total and XG4 per game, you'd like the defense to tighten up a bit because that, you know, would put them from where they are to completely elite if they can tighten up that defensive structure. Yeah, I think the, the thing to keep in mind here with this discussion of, you know, what the right defensive sauce is, is that actually even if they just, if they can continue producing offensively the way they are, even if it stays at this level, there's still going to be a reasonably good MLS team. It's just, you know, can you take that step towards the elite top of the table squad? And that's where those defensive improvements would make a big difference. And yeah, the sauce analogy is a good one because I feel like it's, I feel like it's all the right all the right ingredients are assembled. They're just the ratios, the the combination, what point during the recipe you add certain ingredients. It's just that's not quite right at the moment. So I feel like they have the tools they need here. Uh it's just how do you get the most out of them in the right spots? I mean, maybe you could you could make a case that the the fullback position is is not a point of depth, but I think you can you can work around that, and on any MLS squad, Alex, we talked about this so much. There's going to be weak points. There's going to be deficiencies. Like this is not um, this is not a top side in Europe where you've got kind of relatively limitless budget budgetary constraints where you're one of the top teams in the country and you can just sort of hoard all the best players. Like that's not it's not the way it is. So there's going to be uh, weak spots, and to me, that's where the the three-five-two is certainly attractive because you saw against Seattle so much less being asked of Javane Brown and Luis Martins. And I actually want to say that like Luis Martins is still not a good defensive fullback, but for what it's worth over the last four matches, like I like what I've seen from him on the ball. He's he's had a couple secondary assists, a couple crosses that have led to goals. Uh, for what for what he is as a footballer, I thought his con- contribution's been relatively positive. But then you look at against Houston, and I watch back a couple of goals, and I'm like, okay, Luis, close down, close down. He's going to close down. And it's like, nope, there goes the cross. It's a goal. 
And that's that's just what you're gonna get from Luis Martin. So you've got to put him in those positions less. Or you gotta ask Javain to defend on an island when a you know when a ball is whipped in, you have to make a clearance. You don't really want to be putting Javain Brown in those positions too often because he has good nights, he has bad nights defensively, and it's gonna create problems. So, you know, I, I think it's it's worth a look. Obviously, we're all, I think, pretty encouraged by what you saw versus Seattle. And I understand that from match to match, depending on how they switching to three at the back might essentially take away some of their uh, possession-based tactics, right? Like it might it might set up a little bit less for the Caps to just be on the ball constantly. So Vanny's got to balance that. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting with Ranko Veselinovic having his personal absence, Matias Laborda playing a little more at center back. I just I still don't know what the right the right combination is there because uh, I was kind of excited to see Laborda and Tristan Blackman together as a center back pairing because Blackman's been I, I think really really good all season and Laborda had been trending upwards but then Houston was a was a bit of a mess and I feel like the you know the fullbacks collectively having really bad games defensively didn't help that but uh but Laborda too you know incredibly aggressive which is which is both a gift and a curse so I don't know if I necessarily have a have a fully fledged answer because uh you know you don't want to make defensive tweaks at the at the full sacrifice of some of the great things you're doing offensively but uh yeah, I hope that they can they can figure this out. I think it, this honestly at this point might be a bit of an international break thing, where if they if they do consider like a, a genuine formation switch, I don't think it will happen before then because they wanna they wanna get as much as they can out of this this current little run of matches, and then maybe you know if they if they gotta button things up defensively and in a more major way, I could see it happening in the middle of the month here when they have some time to work on it. Well, I'd say that it absolutely is a formation issue. And I think that's fair to point out. And I think just the big reason for it is, look, I think they have chosen the formation, not the formation, but one of the two formations that is the most taxing on two fullbacks. It's Those formations are the 4-3-2-1 with the, the Christmas tree. And it's also a personal favorite of mine. So this isn't me knocking the formation. I absolutely love it. But the four three one two with the number ten under two strikers very similar, just a bit of a a tweak to the the double forwards. Thing is, those are two incredibly narrow formations uh, with midfielders and forwards that play narrow. What does that mean? The width is supplied by the fullbacks, and it just means you need two absolute marathon running track star fullbacks, preferably who can get very involved on you know offensively and at the very bare minimum are capable defensively of at least getting back and you know doing that i think that's just not a knock at this point on any of the white caps fullbacks but that's not their game like right luis martins we've seen that he doesn't have the legs again it's been nice to see him finally that concept of a left foot we spoke so much of to finally see some sort of tangible iteration and existence of it it's been nice and it's helped the white caps offense and he's helped the getting forward part you know and you know the same can be said for javane brown obviously sometimes his crosses can be wildly inconsistent but when he's been on his game he can cross ball and honestly you go through the other options ryan reposo very good going forward probably amongst the guys 
who who they have at fullback is probably the best at going forward, but he's also a natural attacker, right? He's someone who uh, is going to do his best work going forward. He is going to look best at wingback, as is a guy like Luis Martins, as is arguably a guy like Javain Brown. And, uh, you, you know, Matias Laborde on the complete flip side of it is a defense first player, right? Like it's something where there's not, there's truly, if you look across the roster, the only guy I can look who fills the, the what if if I were to play a four three one two or four three two one and I'm the coach and I'm looking at fullbacks who could fulfill those demands, the only player who I'm looking on this roster who can capably play that is Ali Ahmed. I think he's the only one who would be able to provide enough going forward, but still have the legs to go back. So I'm looking, so I'm like, yeah, there there really isn't any other option. So because of that, if you want that width while also kind of keeping things narrow in the attack, the only other alternative is a three at the back, and I think that's. Uh, you know, f- fair. I think it's something where uh, there, there's many ways to look at it. If you don't want to sacrifice offense, it could be, uh, yes, this is a bit, you know, not as not what you'd be, expect, but you can play on there's Kubas in the middle of the back three off the ball, like on the ball. And then off the ball, what that does allow you off the ball is it buys time for the wing backs to get back and he can push up in the midfield and do his thing. It's a bit unorthodox, I know. Um, but that's one example. If not, you could just go straight up for a back three. You put, you know, uh, Laborda in the heart of it so he can be very aggressive and step up and do his thing, but still have the shield of Blackman and, you know, Veselinovic behind him. Um, but I think those would probably be the two, the, the two options you'd look at for width. If not straight up, yeah, you look at something where it, 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 it you know, you're all of a sudden looking at ways such as like a four, five, one where, Golden Vita are going to be asked to play as wingers off the ball because I think that's also another thing. If your fullbacks are going to have to do so much with, well, then the wing you have to have wingers, and the lack of wingers kind of nullifies that. So there are a few solutions. I think pretty much if I'm Vanny Sartini, the solution I would go for is, of course, play Ahmed there for now as a stopgap, um, and are you know de- genuinely upgrade the two position, the two fullback positions if you want to keep playing this way. Again, it's not a knock on any of the players there, but it's something where just go look for two players with with lungs like that. Or if you want to keep the squad you have, and that's understandable because a shift to a three five two, just imagine what can get out of a guy like Reiner Posa who needs to be playing more and be getting more. What it can get out of Martins Brown, then you you go to three at the back and you you get creative, you know. And hey, maybe there's some potential ways to make that work. You go to that, you know, Burhalter and. Uh, Kubas pivot more often and maybe you, you, you tweak things up you go to a front three of some sorts of uh, you know Gressel, Gold Vitae underneath White obviously that would take a bit of a tweak maybe more of a 4-2-3-1 in that case to get that double pivot um, but but yeah the, it feels just like as the way it stands is there's just too much being asked of the fullbacks and this isn't new it's it's something we said in week two but at least week two you can be like okay maybe it's everyone gets fit they get the fitness levels up but through 15, 16 games now, it's been clear that the demands are just too high and it's shown at times. Yeah, that's all really good stuff. Uh, lots to to think about. I think maybe the, to me, the the cheapest and easiest way to get this done in the interim is just to play Matias Laborda at right back and not really expect a whole lot of, out of him offensively. And then essentially do a callback to what they did last year, which is the, the three and a half at the back where Luis Martins has the the capability to jump forward into the midfield four 
and everyone sort of shifts over and it's essentially three at the back when they need it to be like that's they don't have to break the system you don't lose a midfielder you don't mess up the attacking chemistry uh, in the meantime you just you miss out on you know Javane Brown's not going to be running up and down that that right flank the same way so I don't know if that's the I don't think that's the permanent solution but I could see over the next week or two here um, that might be something they look at I mean SKC's been scoring a lot of goals recently, so uh, it's going to be good defensive test upcoming here on the weekend. Uh, just going to be curious to see what happens going forward. Um, yeah, I, I just, I like the idea of, I feel like in terms of defensive responsibilities and uh, mitigating that that wingback, fullback issue, three at the back would make sense, but then you kind of run out of starting 11 spots for all your really good attacking players so it's a it's a tough one they're good they're gonna have to figure it out here um yeah i'd like to see more matthias laborda still it's just you you love that swashbuckling bull in a china shop mentality but uh just against houston with how taxed those fullbacks were there was sometimes where it was like matthias no just stay back like we don't we, this is not what we need right now i appreciate your aggression but uh yeah just got caught out in a number of moments as did really all the white caps defenders because uh the shape broke down far too often but uh we're gonna see here that as i said good testing in sporting kc then uh you know a, a very a very serious mentality for sure. They're going to need to be disciplined against Montreal because there's a lot on the line in that match. And it's just something we're going to continue to monitor going forward. And as I, as I outlined at the beginning of this defensive conversation, this is not a, not full blown panic station because they're defending at an MLS average level. They're a, they're a good attacking team. So you don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Just uh, find a way to, you know, can you creep that goals against average down from 1.2, 1.3 to 1.1, 1.05? You get into that realm and now now you're looking at a real elite team. So I, I think they're capable of getting there. Just going to require some, uh, you know, Vanny with the lab coat on, mixing the different compounds, figuring out the uh, the right combination. That's the That's the real answer. And, Vanny, secret sauce, it's obviously Sebastian Burhalter, but uh, no, I digress, but it certainly feels like maybe he could help. Um, I think that pretty much wraps up most chatter that we have on the games and kind of what stood out. But uh, to wrap it up, Sam, obviously uh, we have some white caps chatter to empty the notebook before we look forward. Obviously, we've just looked at, you know, both sides of the field, some players that have stood out. It's there's a few players on the flip side that we're a bit worried about. You know, it's something where you you, you look at the performance. It's not you know it's just overall in the overall context. You look at the team playing well, the goals are flowing in. You're happy to see, but there are a few guys who, for example, we'd love to see more involved in all this. Like the Whitecaps pouring in goals, right? Guess who's sitting there with the donut in terms of goals? Your DP striker Sergio Cordova, and that's something where. Look, you've just played a couple of cup games against CPL teams. You've played a couple of home games. You'd like to see, you know, one of them fall for him. Uh, Alexandro Schopf comes back from injury. The Whitecaps defense kind of goes back to where it was early in the season. All of a sudden, you look at the the stretch of games where, where Alessandro Schopf is out. 
they're defending well. You kind of start to put two and two together. Uh, you know, then there's Javane Brown, where look, we've always been honest with Javane Brown in the sense that it's sometimes very, very good, and sometimes it's you know a lot to be desired, and uh, you know certainly another level to hit. Feels like as of late, it's been a lot more of the latter than the former. At least there is that kind of inconsistency there. Arguably, usually if he was ever consistent, it was on the upper edge. He'd be consistently, you know, good for a couple of games and then would slow down. And then, of course, there, there's Thomas Assal. So, I mean, Sam, you you put it eloquently in the note. How close are we to abandoning ship? Let's just roll through it one by one. Alessandro Shop. What are your thoughts on, on him? And what do the Whitecaps need to maybe get more out of him? Or is it time to abandon ship? Yeah, so this was perhaps, I guess, my most contentious take from from my recent written stuff, just in terms of, like, specifically in the Houston match, just watching him, like, not be able to run full speed, basically. And especially in that first half when the match was very vertical, very end-to-end, very, a lot of transition play, it was like, oh, man, like, Schaaf just can't cut it in this type of match. And... I understand that's not the way the White Caps want to play this season, but you were saying before the show, Alex, and I thought it was perfect. This is MLS. Like those kinds of matches just happen, right? Like it's sometimes it's a track meet. And this isn't even necessarily a knock on shop. It's just he at his best in Europe is probably a number 10 in attacking mid or like an inverted winger. And the Whitecaps have a shed load of those already. Like you've got Pedro Vite and Ryan Gold. <laughs> Debra Caicedo, if he can get back up to speed, that's kind of, you know, his best role. Um, Julian Gressel's already a ball-dominant midfielder in this system. So I just don't know if he can't do the box-to-box number eight transition play. If you've already got so many sort of ball-dominant attacking mids and... He's struggling to play in MLS's transition game. I just don't know where his fit is. That's not, he obviously has the quality to be a good MLS player. He's not a, he's not a liability to the squad. I think he's still got like a, a veteran savvy and a maturity that even when his, uh, you know, his actual legs maybe let him down, he, he's a smart defender. He's just not always in the spaces he needs to be. So yeah, this is not like a an indictment of Alessandro Schopf. I just wonder if this is, you know, a roster spot that really needs to be used on this type of player. And we were talking before the show, Alex. It's just a thing where if this was a, a youngster, if this was a 23-year-old Austrian, it's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe in a couple of years' time, he'll be what you need him to be for your squad. Or, um, you know, maybe there's just, you can you can mold him into the, the player you want him to be but this is this is a guy you've brought into the squad to be like at his optimal impact right now and i just don't see it and i certainly don't see a year from now or two years from now how something's going to change in a drastic way so i just wonder if this is yeah if this is a good fit for the player a good fit for the team uh going forward so yeah it's not like a not an indictment of shop just a just maybe not a great fit, and uh, it's not the only, not the only bad fit we're going to discuss here. Yeah, well, I have a lot of thoughts on shop before I transition over to the next name, so I'll try my best to get them all out in prompt and timely fashion. But I think Shop's a great player. I think that's worth noting. I think it's something where he, when he gets into his rhythm and he gets in the flow, 
he makes things happen in the final 30 has this final pass that you can tell is you know been molded by times in the technical league like the bundesliga playing in austria etc but i think what's been clear is that you know like they say there's only room for one sheriff in this town well there's only room for one sheriff in the white caps midfield and that's julian gressel i think it's something where gressel he has the exact same issues as shop if we're going to go in that term uh you know he's his running at times leaves a lot to be desired. He can get very, very high up the field. Thing is with Gressel, if he when he's in the final third, he's going to drop a truckload of of key passes and high, you know, big chances for for the strikers. He's going to rip absolute cannons of shots. You know, first of all, have we when have we seen Alessandro Shop drop some of these shots? I, it's something where I'd like to see him shoot a bit more because we've seen what it what you know what it's done to see Kubas and Gressel and Gold and Vite shoot more. So Schaaf and, and Gressel are two very similar profiles, and I think what's been clear is that in an MLS midfield, if you want to play a very high tempo, up flowing game, there's only room for one of them because I think it, it you know it's something where Kubas can cover so much, but if both of your eights are completely stretched up, your fullbacks are in the final third, you already have a very attack-minded front three. Like, you're not... It's not like you have defensive tens in Gold and Vite. Like, obviously, Gold will track back, but, like, it's something where he's been at his best this year when they've almost asked him to stay a little higher. Like, look, Ryan, we appreciate you wanting to run back and help the center backs, but stay up. So you're not getting him tracked back as much. That's purely instructions. Well, that that puts the onus on your eights and your your midfielders to get back and fill a lot of those ground and your fullbacks. And we've talked at nauseum about the fullbacks, but it feels like the midfielders can also compensate for the the fullbacks. Your if your midfielders get back, they can almost stretch out. They can fill the space. They can slow down midfielders. I think that's the big thing that the, the, the you know your your midfielders can do in transition is just body get behind the ball. Force a team to go back. Where does that do that? Buys time for your fullbacks to get behind the ball as well. And I just think when Schopf is in the midfield and Gressel, they both struggle to do that. And that just leaves all the pressure on Kubas. And some games he does it, to be fair. It's Kubas. He's superhuman. But I think it's something where, I look, again, that's my my big issue with Schopf is that Ali Ahmed does all the defending. And he showed it. That's why Ali Ahmed, his biggest impact Arguably wasn't his offense. It was his defense. Again, you look at his stretch of him playing as an eight. The Whitecaps play some of their best defensive soccer of the season. Okay, that's the huge impact. And then you look at Ahmed, what he brings on the ball. He brings, you know, a lot of the similar skills of aggressive of a shot. He's patient on the ball. He can, you know, he's starting to show an ability to pick out a final pass. He can run at guys too, which neither of the other two can and gives you a bit of a different profile in that regard and just an overall good management of the ball. All of a sudden, that's going against shops that just Ahmed straight up fits better than him in the system and is at a fraction of the price point. And that kind of leads to the last point that's hurting shop. This was a 300 to 400K player fine. He, he's, if you're, he's a super sub, great. At that price, you can stomach it. Look, yes, it's MLS. It's a salary cap league. But with where the cap is now, you can afford to have a couple 300 to 400K players on the bench now being a super sub. And I think that'd be great. Like, it'd be great if... Look, if Shop's legs aren't there, give him 30 off the bench to kind of influence a game based on what he sees fit. The problem is that closer to 600, 800 K, we've just spent time talking at Najm about the fullbacks. How would two 400 K fullbacks look for that same price point with Ahmed in the middle versus what you're getting now? And that's a question where you look at the value cost of that whole proposition. And that's where uh, it's just something with Shop again, great player 
just fit is questionable and you add in all the the, the salary uh constraints that you you know you could free up with with, with him that's where where the issue is for me so yeah, look, again, it's going to be something to figure out, uh, something where I think there's room for him, but it feels like now when everyone's healthy, it, it feels like Schopf and Gressel should be going up against each other, not Schopf and Ahmed or, or Gressel and Ahmed, just because it, it's like what we just mentioned with all this Burhalter dialogue. Like, for the Whitecaps to be their best in midfield defensively, it feels like they're going to need to find a way to put two of Kubas, Burhalter, and Ahmed on the field. Like, I feel like those are the battles for the two spots. And then when it comes down to the kind of third luxury midfielder role, it's kind of Gressler shot. And it's kind of unfortunate that it's ended up shaping up this way. No, that's, that's absolutely a perfect way to set it up. And you know what this is all making me think about a little bit is that what was Alessandro shot in terms of like an acquisition? It was a attempt to fix a problem of this club's own creation, which was the Kayo Alexandre situation. Oh. Like if, if Kayo was here, Kayo can be that running mate in the midfield for Julian Gressel, who can, who can do the stuff in and around the box, but can also be that number eight box to box guy. Right. And they, they wanted to bring someone in to fill the Alexandre void and, the problem is, is that the type of player they got is not exactly perfect for, you know, for what they actually ended up needing, given the system they decided to play. And I think this transitions really well into the next player as well, because it's kind of the same story. <laughs> Lucas Cavallini departs the squad. They're looking for a different type of striker. They, they flirt with some different strikers in the offseason. They end up with Sergio Cordova. And this is another situation where the tactical fit doesn't look great. And and also, I mean, the, the performance of the player just in general has, has not been good so far. So, uh, yeah, I'll just throw it over to you, Alex. I mean, your thoughts on uh, the Sergio Cordova experience TM so far, because it's, uh, it's not been pretty, unfortunately. That's that's kind of all that, that comes to mind right now with uh, Sergio Cordova. And again, it's something I don't really have much new to add from the last few episodes. It's, it's just a mix of frustration in that what what are we seeing from him? It feels just like lost out there. Some of the touches, just some of the decisions, like those are little things that can almost be controlled. Like, look, I'll be the first one to say I you know, I don't care if strikers are scoring or not scoring. I, I'm looking at, you know, when I'm looking at if a striker is doing well, it's all these little things. Of course, if you're a striker, you can play awful. And if you're bagging goals, you buy yourself time from, you know, those things. But eventually it all adds up to you. If you play the right way, goals will fall for you. And if you play the wrong way, goals will dry up. And the worrying thing about Cordova is he's not playing the right way, <laughs> so to speak, right? Like it's just little things like passes. He's struggling to string together. He's just drifting into the wrong areas of the field. He's going wide when he should maybe be narrow. He's going narrow when he should maybe be wide. It just the fit is is not there. And that's a bit of a concern because, you know, look, it's something where he, this is where I'd say preach a bit of patience. Look like it's a new player. He's coming off injury, et cetera. But it's just there hasn't been an instinct there of at least, you know, effort in, in the sense of not saying he's not trying, but it just feels like, Almost when you're a striker struggling, you want to see him overcompensate with effort. You want to at least see him run his socks off a little more, or at least, you know, get up there a little. 
but again, it's someone for his size as well. He's not really winning all that many duels, which again, if you're, you know, if you're six two and as big as he is, and I get it. It's, it's something where I, I get it that he's not necessarily the profile. I mean, we again, all it's a discussion we've had. I mentioned it heading into the season. His profile is somebody who wants to run behind defenders, run at them, and he hasn't had a chance to do that. So I'll feel for them in that regard. But also, it's something where, as a striker, there are still things you can do, like. Look, for someone of your size, contest some 50-50s. Make center backs know that you're out there. Hold up the ball. Keep the ball. You know, just press a little harder if you're you know, you're a bit frustrated. We just haven't seen any of those things. And that's where it's something where, look, this is a tough situation from both sides because it does come down to deployment as well. And it comes down to why buy a striker of this profile if you're not going to get the most out of it. Because, again, if this is a million-dollar striker. This is a DP, right? This is someone where if you're going to be putting that sort of money, you – you, you need him to be a fit in MLS. You, you kind of do need him to be a fit. It's it's not a, you know, it's, this isn't some 300, 400K mistake. Like, oh, whatever, he'll be a super sub. You, you, you get away with it. Again, we keep talking about these holes in the roster. If Cordova is a luxury player that hasn't really contributed anything, again, what would two 500K fullbacks look like on this Whitecaps team, right? Like you look around the league and the going price of fullbacks, heck, at the salary he's making, how would one Richie Larea? look at right back for example because they're on very similar salaries if i'm not mistaken um and that's the the frustrating thing again with the a, a cordova because it just feels like it's coming from both sides at least if it was you know one one side was struggling you know you're like okay the other side needs to fix it up and to be fair cordova could turn around a lot of those things i mentioned are very simple they're controllable and then if he does that it's something and if the deployment doesn't change you look um, but it just feels like he's in the wrong position right now. And you look at what Betcher's brought, you look at Levante Johnson and the, you know, in the second team, you look at some of these other strikers, like a glory Amanda, who, you know, isn't a true out and out number nine, but he's played well, the second team and kind of fits an intriguing profile. You look at that and you're a little more curious, especially if they're going to come in at the fraction of the price. And at least if they're going to fit your system more. So for Cordova, the questions have to be asked, like it's something where do you bite the bullet? You accept, okay, look, we, we bought him maybe for a profile of our 22 team. He doesn't fit our 23 team. We made a mistake. We'll eat the cost, move on, or you're going to have to find a way to bite the boat on the other side and, you know, get the most, maybe even tweak your system a little bit uh, to to fit him or, uh, you know, because something has to give in this regard uh, because for a player of that salary and, you know, what he fills, it just feels like you're not getting enough out of him at the moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the big thing that that you alluded to there is that it just we're not seeing a lot of signs that improvement is on the horizon. Just from like the body language, the way he's moving around in the pitch, the the way he's playing, taking kind of, you know, silly silly yellow cards. I mean, even something it's really like he's got to he's got to change up the hair. The hair looks ridiculous. Like it's a bad look and it just when 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 the when the when the look is not a good one, I feel like you know the goals don't come, the the confidence isn't high, and yeah, and he's just you know playing like a playing like a six two, you know he's playing like Christian Tachera at at six two, just you know trying to trying to dribble down the wing and and hit a, hit a little. It almost feels unfair. Yeah, at least it was, Tichero would go up for some of these 50-50s. He had no chance trying to win. Yeah, like I've, never, I've never seen someone at that height with like less body awareness when a ball is crossed into him. 
Like, it's just his body's a mess and it's like, it's in his stomach and in his chest and he gets thrown off by defenders. And and I, I feel like, you know, he's got more aerial presence than that, but it just, it, it's not there right now at all. I don't know what kind of reset you can give this guy to just, uh, you know, get him to go back to whatever he was doing at RSL last season. But uh, yeah, it's tough. Um, I, I think this will be, unless something pretty significant changes, this is going to turn into a one year and cut bait type scenario. Uh, you know, I don't know why I, it made me think about it while you were outlining all the different striker options, but it makes me, I know that Easton Ngaro is not playing amazingly right now pacific but it's also one of those things where you know with all the julian gressel ryan gold pedro vite all able to hit in crosses luis martins maybe you just should have spent a bunch of time in the offseason like investing in easton and garo's personal development and just have him be like a header specialist you know and that might have been a better use of your resources than uh chasing down a sergio cordova in the offseason uh because it just it doesn't feel like they needed to I mean, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, and we've talked about this a ton before on the shore, the show. But like investing a bunch in striker just doesn't seem like a great idea. And uh, this so far is just kind of going to prove that concept true. Where really the Whitecaps probably could have done without this this addition, and and you know now they've they've invested the resources and they're really not getting any any underlying or real world contributions. So uh, I, this is like a close to abandoned shit one, obviously at this point, you, you still have to have a little bit of faith that things can turn around. But yeah, as, as I just said at the start here, it's like there've been no signs of life. I think that's what's really demoralizing. Yeah. Look, all I'd say about the Sergio Cordova situation as well is like, yeah, I mean, uh, Two things. First of all, the aerial duels, just out of curiosity, over the last 365 days, he's 54th percentile in aerial duels among strikers. That's just, again, wild. For context, last year, he was in the 78th percentile, so he's slipped a fair bit in that regard. So, again, it does feel like part of it is mental. It's on him. feels like he's almost just been too comfortable in Vancouver. Like, you almost, you know, feel like you want him to, to go out there and get a fire lit under him. Um, because yeah, like you mentioned, you mentioned Easton Ongaro, for example. If if you're looking at CPL, like again, if I were the Whitecaps, Wubens Pasias, again, you could have thrown some money at him. He would come in at a fraction of the cost. He's 22, so at least you could look at the upside part. Despite being 22, he has more professional goals than Cordova has in his whole career. Of course, that's not objectively fair because you know Pasias has played uh, one and a half seasons in the CPL, whereas you know. Cordova spent a lot of time in the Bundesliga, but still that's something where scoring goals is a repeatable act across the levels. So the fact that Pasillas has put in a good 30 year, I think now already like 20, no, not 30, but still 20 plus goals already in his young career with, with, with Forge. He's six one too. So he has that, that height factor. I'm just saying that's just one of many profiles. You could have looked at CPL. You could have looked across MLS uh, again, of course, Cordova, was scouted within MLS, but uh, again, obviously it feels like there's something um, where, again, I, I can't even say like it was scouted wrong. Cause I, I feel like, again, if you'd go back and listen to our episode, at least beginning 
the season. We said it. We're like, oh, Cordova would look really good on last year's team, making those runs in behind. Making like we never said, like, obviously you saw the size, you're like, oh, he could have been a dominant in the air. We're never seeing that with him. Like, this isn't like a cavalry, where you're like, oh, this is a El Tanque. Like, this is someone who's gonna wear down defenders he's gonna you know put ice stocks way up in bc because he's just absolutely clobbering everyone and everything that moves like this is something where kind of the warning signs are there all i'm gonna say with these last two signings and maybe this is kind of just you know throwing some dirt in the air or some sort of you know blindness but you know maybe putting one and one together and getting four but also sam just the last point on these two does it, it feels like for considering they were shop and um, and Cordova were technically two of the last signings under Nico's overhaul. Not saying, you know, anything, any connections of who signed what or what was signed by who. These feel like two of the least overhaul signings that were made. And then all of a sudden you see when overhaul departs, which is just a few months after all these signings are made. All I'm saying I, is that is that wild to be putting that out in the universe? I think definitely the the Cordova one feels like in no way an overhaul signing. I don't know about, I don't know about shop. Um, but yeah, the, the Cordova one, I think is like a definite sign of there's, there's a different philosophy here. They, they saw they had, they felt like they had a, well, we lost Cavallini. So we have to bring someone else in to fill that role. And yeah, it, it just feels like that was maybe a bit of a, of an unforced error. Um, the, the shop one, I, I can see how, um, they've well, almost say been the age is is the yeah, big one because the sure. profile was shop the numbers were there that's that 100 percent i'll say yeah. but given the age it feels like it's some of those where you probably could have of, of course i mean i can't profess and say oh i watched all his bundesliga games so this is also like i can't say i'm you know i did my full research in that regard but maybe there's something where you could have picked up on potential speed issues and but whatnot. i would say the the one thing about the age and where it might have actually been a little bit more of an overhaul signing than you might think is that's how you're able to get a player that otherwise might not come to MLS because he's a little bit older. That's where like there's the value there, right? Where you can get a guy at, if Schopf was 24, he's either not coming to MLS or you're going to have to pay him a bunch of money to come to MLS. So I can at least see a case for how that one makes sense, even at the advanced stage on the analytics model. It's the Cordova one where it's like, yeah, I'm not really sure what you're seeing there other than he fills the role and he maybe fit the way this team played last season. And I wasn't expecting, to be honest, you know, when we were talking about the Cordova signing initially, I wasn't expecting the Whitecaps to to change so drastically. I thought, oh yeah, well, we want to hold more of the ball. We want to play more in possession. Like every team says that, except for, you know, except for maybe St. Louis, where you go like ultra high press. We have no interest in the ball whatsoever. Uh, but most teams say they want to hold the ball more. Uh, I didn't know that they were going to go so far in the other direction this season. And uh, yeah, now, you know, I don't know, is that, miscommunication between Vanny Sartini and Axel Schuster is that overhaul on his way out. Uh, it's it's very interesting to try to pull apart the pieces there. But uh, I think your point's a good one. The, the direction of those signings and maybe the, the lack of clear identity Ooh. of what they're trying to bring in has been, has been notable over the last six to 12 months. Even when you look at Matias Laborda and like the way they brought him in versus the role he's actually played this season. It's, the, the plan feels less clear. 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'll, I'll walk back the shop signing in the sense that also around that time, again, the Julian Gressel trade happens. And at the time you're like, oh, we're attracting this elite wing back and a slot right into a three at the back system. And he ends up being an eight, right? Like I, I also do think the shop's biggest, again, like we mentioned, it's shop versus Gressel. How did the Gressel situation to come up is because Manny Sartini took a look at one of the best crossers in MLS and saw number eight and credit to him. That's <laughs> he, he obviously saw something that, that works. So it's again, not a knock, but uh, uh, so I'll walk back the shop one in that regard, just other than the age it, it was, you know, profile was there, but yeah, it's something where you look at the Cordova one. It's certainly uh, questions to be had. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's let's move on to the third one on the list here. And this is this is one I take no pleasure in doing, but I think it's a conversation we we have to have after St. Louis, and that's Thomas Assal. Um it, it's been a tough couple seasons for Thomas Assal, whether it's you know, prolonged injuries, having to battle for the net last season with Cody Cropper, uh coming into this season not sure what his role with the squad was going to be yoi takaoka comes in now he's really um you know pushed to to a pure backup role and not having the opportunity to play much and then he comes in as you mentioned alex on the road against one of the best offensive teams in mls and it goes very poorly now uh you know i think it's it's hard to separate but it's important to kind of make these two points Thomas Saul needs to be better, needed to be better in that match and made some mistakes that no matter how little match action you've seen, like you, you just need that from an MLS keeper. Uh, but at the same time, I think you can make a really good case that the Whitecaps have done Hassal no favors with the way they've handled them over the last couple seasons. And it just doesn't feel like they have a clear plan for his development. Like if you want, if you want him to be a... Canadian men's national team keeper of the future, like, all right, you gotta, you gotta handle him in that way. And it doesn't feel like they're doing that right now. And, uh, you know, if the, if the topic of this is uh, abandoning ship, I think this is one where, you know, Thomas lasalle has got a head for the life raft, right? Like he's gotta, he's gotta find another ship to, uh, to take him on because, um, if, if Takaoka, is going to be here for the foreseeable future, which I, I think he's going to be, then, you know, no time like the present for Hassal to cement himself as a number one somewhere and get significant match experience and, and you know, grow his own personal career. Because it just, if he's, you know, maligned to this, this once-off backup who kind of comes in when the Whitecaps are willing to essentially throw away a road match, that just that's not going to help him become a better keeper. And, you know, at this age uh, and this level of senior first team experience, like he's still got to get reps under his belt and uh, yeah, he's not going to improve at the rate he wants to. He's not going to become a can men's national team keeper. If this is the, the setup he's in for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I think for Hassal, I think what I'd say is I, I'd be frustrated with the way he's been handled, though, on the other side of it. I think it's something where, look, I, you look at a game like St. Louis, could he have done a lot better? Absolutely. But also I think it's something where, especially with young players, you have to look in the sort of situations that you're putting them in, right? Like it's something where 
especially you contrast it with some of the other young players. Like you praise, you know, similar ages and whatnot of Ali Ahmed. You 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 know, I guess Ryan Raposo in a sense, obviously a bit older, but I'm talking in past seasons. Um, Simon Betcher again, a little older, but he's he's another example. What are some of the things that happened there? Well, in the case of Ahmed and Betcher, they got a chance to build up confidence on the second team, dominate that next level, get tastes of the first team level, you know, and then boom, they eventually made made good on that and look where they are now. And Ryan Raposo as well gets drafted, you know, starts out as a the, our, our third sub of the year, continues to grow in that and, you know, just takes a chance and run with it. Like it was, it was a slow burn for him. And for Hassal, there just feels like there hasn't been that same consistency and plan and idea. And I get it, it's tough with goalkeepers. It's not like forwards where uh, in attack out, out outfield players where you know there's so many minutes to go around, 10 outfield players in a game, etc. Whereas um, you know, a goalkeeper only one plays, uh, and then you look at the second team, only one can play there, and you often have four or five in a system. You're trying to develop, you know, Max Anchor, you're trying to develop an Isaac Bomer and kind of Hassal's falling in in between all that. But I think overall, if you look across the timeline, it's just been it's really the the problems I think start in 2022 with the handling. Cause look, 2020, way ahead of schedule. He's just like 1920. You get the injury to Max Crepo at MLS's back. He steps up, he does well, you're happy, he gets injured. Okay, that's massively unlucky. You know, all right, that was good first glimpse. Okay, you go to 2021. Max Crepo's back, he's your guy, he ends up being one of the best keepers in MLS. He plays all year long. Hassel doesn't play much. That's fine. Again, he's still young. You didn't have your second team yet. You had Crepo dominating. It's good to learn from a guy like that. Okay, 2022. That's, I think, where everything falls off the rails. Why Crepo leaves. And then you say, okay, Hassel's, Thomas Hassal is our number one guy. Look, you say it, commit to it, right? It's something where you, you, you've said it. You put it out there. It's like we mentioned at the time. Could they have gone out and gotten, say, like a Takaoka as goalkeeper or this or that? Absolutely. But they committed to being Hassal being the number one to his credit. He responded well to that. He had a bit of that slow start as did the whole team. He's rounding into great form. All of a sudden he gets injured. He had his best game before that injury was against Toronto FC. He gets injured in the 90th minute of that game or whatever it was late in that game, 80, 80th minute, 85th minute, or it's actually probably way earlier in my memories, but, but he gets injured in that game. All that to say, Cody Cropper steps up. And then you end up riding Cody Cropper very hard and it's something where it, it worked for in flashes like you win the cup with Cody Cropper and goal. He had some good runs in MLS games. Ultimately, the underlying numbers suggest that maybe, uh, you know, you went a bit too hard in, in that regard and that you should have given Hassal more of a look. Then you finish the year by giving him that confidence and he looks great. And then what do you do? You come in, you bring in a brand new number one, a very high pedigree number one, AFC Champions League S number one. Fine, okay, you've, you've made that decision. Takoko is obviously your guy. You've brought him in. This is a you know very good player. And then within that, Hassal, all he's been able to get is Cl- Real Espana away with the Caps basically second team and you know guys who hadn't played yet. It's okay, you go to LAFC with a Caps second team and get absolutely thrown to the wolves. And then you can't get any game against York, against Pacific. If you're going to be a backup at the very least, right? Like so many good teams do this. You play your number one through all the league games and all the big games. But you still trust your number two to play in the cups. You trust the number two to at least play in these other games. And I think now in, in hindsight, it's in 2022 when 
you know, Cropper got a little longer leash than maybe he should have if Hassal was your supposed number one guy. And then it's now at the beginning of this year where you bring in Takaoka, either the plan should have been clear. Look, Thomas, you're going to get cup games. You know, you're going to get trusted in cup games. Or he should have just headed out on loan at the beginning of 2023. That's kind of how I feel on it. So for me, it's just that lack of plan that it's been, you know, obviously he burst on the scene early and that kind of changed the timeline. But really in 2022, if they committed him to be the guy, then run with that. And then now at the beginning of the year, when you bring in a guy, there has to be more clarity with this plan. Well, yeah, I remember doing our preseason stuff and I was calling for this and asking the question back then about like, where's your where's your Cody Cropper veteran keeper stopgap to add to the squad? Because I thought, yeah, it was clear with Takaoka coming in or even if, even if Takaoka hadn't come in and Hassal was your number one, well, then you need that veteran number two. Because, you know, Isaac Bomer, probably not ready. Max Anker, definitely not ready yet. It, it just didn't seem like they had a good idea. And uh, yeah, I would rather Cody Cropper uh, play on the road against Real Espana, you know, take a St. Louis on the road. And okay, they get they get shelled and he loses confidence. Or oh, who cares? It's your 30-year-old USL veteran. Right, like you gotta, you gotta be a little cold and realistic about it. Um, and yeah, if you still, if you're Vancouver and you still value Thomas Asal as an asset, uh, this is not a good way to manage it. And so it just it, it leads me to believe that they just don't genuinely value Thomas Asal as like a future keeper. Like it, it doesn't. They don't. They're not treating him that way. So it, it leads me to believe that. Um, so yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I, I honestly I don't have a ton more to add. I think it's just he needs he needs a new opportunity at this point. And unless something drastic changes, I I have very little confidence this is the right place for him to for him to stay for any prolonged period of time. Yeah, I think my all the all that long winded answer I I had to say give him a loan. I'd say CPL. Honestly, it should have been done earlier. Again, you look across the board at CPL. I think there's a few teams that could have used them, especially before, you know, maybe going for certain moves in goal. Like, um, I mean, poof, just looking across board, I mean, Pacific would have been a very obvious one at the beginning of the year with so many question marks in terms of them obviously relying on a Gazdov. Obviously, they bring in a basket, and that's a good move, I think, because basket's just 21. But say how would have a Hassal basket Gazdov trio look? Heck, if you're so high on Gazdov, how would it have been to have Hassal and Gazdov? And, you know, maybe Basket sticks around at a Halifax or, or something, or, you know, or, or gets a, a job elsewhere. He would have looked good as a backup on a Vancouver FC, for example, learning behind um, a Callum Irving. This is Basket, that is, not a Hassal. So Pacific is example one, looking across the board, because Vancouver and Valor are quite sorted in goal. You know, I, I feel like maybe York, someone to push Nico Giantsopoulos, a guy like Hassal could have, you know, been thrust in there and, and, and done well um you could look as well uh you know Halifax as well Yan Filling comes in a bit of a veteran but a guy like Casal just learning the way Patrice Geyser wants to play very free-flowing a lot of play on the, on his feet would, would help Hassal uh immensely so yeah there were options within the CPL that looked like that could have fit and it's just frustrating now because you sent him on loan all these teams have clear hierarchies of who's who in goal. You've already played eight games. So you've lost those eight valuable developmental increment of minutes that he could have get, he could have gotten. So 
yeah, it's just just frustrating on that regard that they didn't send him on loan. And yeah, it's like, what does it say that you're not willing to play him against York and Pacific? I think those are the two really where, look, you could excuse the Champions League. It's the Champions League. You want to go out and play your top team, fine, whatever. A, during the Champions League, why don't we see more Hassan MLS play to maybe rest Atakaoka uh, while you focus on Champions League? And then B, yeah, how are you going in the the, the can champ? And it's just, you can't even play him against CPL teams. You're not loaning him to a CPL team. You're not playing him against CPL teams. Like, at what point are you going to build up the the guy's confidence? So, yeah, for Hassan, it feels like a loan at the very minimum should be an option there. It's like, I feel like that'd be good. I think Montreal's shown the blueprint in terms of goalkeeper loans. James Pantemis goes in 2020, builds up his confidence, and it kind of helped him to be, to push in 21 and then be a starter in 22 and uh, did it with Jonathan Sirwa. He went and was the guy at Valor for a couple of seasons. And just look how confident he's been, despite being just 21, 22 for Montreal. He's been excellent. He's been, he's really grown in. Uh, and, and it just feels like Hassal, that, that, that planning hasn't been there. It always feels like with Hassal, it's been like week to week and month to month when for a young goalkeeper, it's always year to year. It's always like get the, there's usually a system of it. It's right. It's 18, 19, you stick around at the club, you're young, you play for a second team. Um, you, you learn from the vets that are there. Okay, 2021, 20, 22, you go out on your loans, you get your experience, and ideally by 23, you then start to push as a starter here or elsewhere. I mean, Max Crepeau is a perfect example. There's countless other examples. Of course, for every, you know, there's there's always going to be anomalies. There's going to be Gaga Slolina at 17, bossing it for the fire and gets a move over to Chelsea. But those are exceptions, right? This is a position where there's only so many and it takes time. And just feels like for the Whitecaps, they they haven't seen that that coming with Hassal, and it's unfortunate because it feels like again there's a talent there that that needs to be unearthed the next level, and uh, you know we saw a glimpse of it in 2020, we've seen glimpses of it since, but there we haven't seen enough to fully draw it out. Yeah, so that those are the three that we're kind of we're, we're looking at and we're monitoring. I mean, there's obviously other other names on the squad as well. Like you wonder what Javane Brown's role is. Um, you know, the the other fullback, Luis Martins. There's some depth guys as well, but really, those are the three. I thought you know that the question is how do they fit going forward, and uh, that was good to kind of dive into them. But now looking ahead, we've got. A couple matches upcoming. Depends on when you're listening to this show. But uh, Sporting Kansas City on the weekend. CF Montreal midweek for the Canadian Championship title as the Vancouver Whitecaps look to defend, to retain that trophy. I mean, first, Alex, just quickly diving into Sporting KC uh, to lay it out for the listener. Historically bad. I, I don't know the exact MLS stats on this, but... Um, Sporting KC winless through their first 10 this season in league play. It was looking really dire. I think they only had three goals through those first 10 matches. So like it was really bad. 
But since then, they've been on a bit of a run. They've got four wins to their credit. And they pair that up with a draw and a loss over that stretch. So four wins from their last six. Uh, They've been finding the back of the net as well. Three goals over Minnesota United, a 2-1 win against Seattle, 4-1 win over the Portland Timbers, and most recently at home, a 2-1 win over FC Dallas. So they're starting to find it a little bit here. Um, Obviously, you know, you've got guys like Alan Polito finally back from injury, uh, starting to grow in his positive play. Uh, You know, Daniel Saloy has been a a contributor. Um, You know, you kind of, it's really a roster that hasn't changed heck of a lot in uh in sporting kansas city but uh they've just you know this is maybe one of those ones alex where i feel like the rest of mls has evolved and continues to get better year on year and i just do wonder if uh sporting kc has has fallen behind just a little bit maybe not adapted quite as quickly as you know some of the other teams in mls yeah, it feels like uh, SKC. For to be to be fair to them, I think injuries have also played a huge role. Just because like they had Alan Polito was their first time they really splashed on anyone in their history. Always typically a lower spending team, and he's just struggled so much with injuries. Missed a full season, and, you know, missed you know so many games with these injuries. So that's a big example. Even this year, they bring in like a guy like Willie Agada last year, and he looks so good, and he's. Oh, with the tibia stress fracture. Uh, and I think that's out for a long-term injury, if I'm not mistaken. Johnny Russell's been struggling for fitness this year. You know, a guy like Remy Walter, who they also kind of splashed on, is not, A, not looked very good in the moments we've seen him, but also, you know, has also dealt with injuries. Gaddy Kinda also missed a lot of last year. And I think him coming back and finally finding his form, he scored out last game out, uh, is a huge plus. Because I think overall it's a good team if you look at the pieces, right? Like, uh, you know, that front three of Saloy, uh, you Russell, Polito, you know, you, th- you can throw some of these other names in into the list uh, as well. Um, you know, like Marinos, Zenos, the 21-year-old up front from Cyprus, which is a fascinating country. Like, there's pieces there, and you go Kinda in the midfield, uh, you know, at the back. It, it's solid, if not un- unspectacular. Um, overall, I think just KC again, it's kind of a what a, a lot of these OG MLS teams like think pre 2012 MLS teams have, have struggled with, especially those like I'd want to say the SKCs, Colorados, and RSLs of the world in particular. It's that kind of trio. You can arguably lump the Dynamo in this week after watching them. It's just there's this kind of struggle to take that next step into what MLS has evolved to in the sense that they're always going to be very solid and very spectacular, but uh just haven't necessarily uh, taken that next step. So good to see them find some form because, you know, always an interesting team when healthy, but for the Whitecaps at home, this is a game they, they should win and would put them in a, in a great situation if they, if they would the table, because MLS is, is MLSing somehow just Whitecaps with 20 points in sixth place, six points off Seattle and first with a game in hand. Of course, St. Louis has somehow played, 13 games so they have some some points to make up lafc only played 12 because of champions league and you know so there's a lot of game in hands that could skew the table but for the most part thanks to seattle hitting going falling down to earth again uh, all of a sudden the table is so open at the top and 
again, winning a game like SKC after winning Houston, beating Houston, beating Seattle at home. There's th- these recent home results that are, are going to push them up and they have more home games on the way. So, hey, if you're going to struggle to win for your life on the road, you may as well build a cushion while you, you do get a rare, what is it, four-game homestand, I guess, because uh, the cup's thrown in there as well. Like You got to take advantage of these games. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the the lack of wins on the road, the the microscope just gets, you know, focused even further on these home stretches. Just to pick up on a couple things you said, you pointed out the injuries. I mean, uh, looking at the injury point report, pardon me, for this upcoming match, SKC is still going to be without Johnny Russell and Graham Zusi, two of their, you know, culture carriers there, um, real real solid contributors. And then Tim Melia out long-term as well. So uh, they've been rolling with Kendall McIntosh between the sticks, which I got to confess, I don't know a lot about 29-year-old American, but uh, it seems like he's been doing a good job so far. And and really for Sporting KC, defending generally hasn't been like a massive issue or they've, they've cleaned up some of that. Kind of like the Whitecaps where they've, they got a good amount of clean sheets, but then they're they're liable to give away uh, four goals against against Seattle earlier this season, and uh, they allowed four against St. Louis as well. So it's been up and down in that respect. But yeah, injuries a big factor. I mean, you know, despite the fact KC's been playing better recently, I think this is another one kind of like Houston where you have to like the Whitecaps' chances, the way they're creating at the moment and uh, just their overall record at home. I think this is one they definitely look to take advantage of. The one question, Alex, as we sort of gently transition towards the Canadian Championship midweek is how much squad rotation do you think we see this weekend? How much do they have to have one eye ahead on Wednesday night? Because it's interesting, Vanny Sartini this season has, he's made the core squad much smaller. And we've seen a lot less rotation. So do they just kind of roll pretty much full strength as much as they can for both these matches? And does the uh, does the Canadian roster spot requirement essentially make up his mind for him in terms of what little tweaks, what little rotation we're going to see between Saturday and Wednesday? Yeah, look, um, oh, it's a tough choice, actually, because what I was going to say is, you can go full tilt for SKC, and you should, because this would be a huge three points for in the MLS table, like really push you up the top of the table. And the nice thing is about playing Saturday at home, you get Sunday as your recovery day, you get Monday, Tuesday, full training. You play Wednesday. That's honestly not bad, whereas you compare to Montreal, it's going to be likely like a Sunday off day. You know, Monday, you, 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 you're, you're traveling, so obviously you can still train and travel, but that's just going to chop you up, right? And then Tuesday, your match day minus one in a new city. So, like, the Whitecaps have that advantage where the the Saturday to Wednesday is not as bad, especially if they're back-to-back home games. So you can go all out. And, you know, I think, obviously, Raposo and Tiber will probably see the field on the final uh, just because you need three Canadians. And, you know, we'll assume Ali Ahmed isn't ready um, just because, you know, the nature of head injuries. Um, so... Look, it'll be interesting to see who they play as a Canadian. Will it? Will we see Levante Johnson get another call? But we see a wild card like a Coupland get a call up front. Maybe a Habi Bullock. He's you know a bit more familiar with the team. 
you know, is it something completely out of, out of the blue, like a Mateo Campagna gets called? Uh, he, you know, he's already on a first team deal, so you don't have to burn a call up, and you know, you start him in the back in a back three, say, and you kind of shelter him a bit. Like, there's options, right? Like, there's there's definitely options you could uh, look at there. Heck, do you go back to a Thomas Assault? Obviously, in a final, it is a bit of a bold ask, and, and we'll see if uh, you know Vanny Sartini does that. But I do I do think you go full tilt for the SKC game. The only thing that's, I guess, annoying if you're the Whitecaps is you're going to go all out for the final. It's a final you should play your best team, win a second trophy in a row for the first time, win a third trophy, qualify for Champions League, yada, yada, yada. It's just you you look at the next game. I was going to say, okay, maybe in the next game you rotate a bit, you're at home, you should still find a way to win. You just happen to welcome Cincinnati the next game. And I don't know if anyone, uh, if if our listeners have been keeping track on Cincinnati Look, this isn't the Cincinnati of 2020. This isn't your Alan Koch Cincinnati. This isn't your whatever the heck followed after that Cincinnati, your three wooden spoons in a row Cincinnati. This is a Cincinnati team that is absolutely killing it right now. 15 games played, 11 wins, three draws, just one loss in 15 games. You are hearing that right. 36 points is the most after 15 games in MLS history. That's more than your LAFCs did. It's more than your New England Revolution did that one season. That's more than, God, you go down the list. Like Cincinnati is playing out of their skin right now. They are a deep team. Uh, they, they, uh, you know, I don't know if they'll have a midweek game themselves. So I'm going to check. I, I'm not sure what their cups is. They're in the cup in the midweek. So you have that to look forward to, but they play on the Tuesday. So they have an extra day of rest versus the Whitecaps. They're also playing the Pittsburgh Riverhounds of usl in in uh at home so not saying they're going to take that game lightly because the pittsburgh upset um and had a big upset in the last round to even qualify they beat um just quickly grabbing they beat the columbus crew in the last round which is a very good team as we know um uh, so it's something where look like that cincinnati game will pose problems but look you have to go all up for the final and pick up the pieces after but i'm just gonna all to say it's gonna be interesting how they go against cincinnati because if they put out the wrong squad they could uh not get embarrassed but uh it could be a frustrating home loss that would halt momentum right before they have to head back on the road again for a road trip to colorado and lafc and skc back to back to back which again are all three locations they've uh historically struggled in especially uh, now that they've struggled to win on road, period. All right. Well, that that took quite the turn there. We got a little bit in depth on FC Cincinnati, but Alex, what do we what do we make now? Kind of looking at CF Montreal and the Canadian Championship itself. What do we make of the CF Montreal team so far this season? It it seems incredibly feast or famine from from what I've seen. Right, like you had that that four match stretch where they just won two nil every match beating New York Red Bulls, Sporting KC, Orlando city and TFC. Um, and they got those back-to-back wins over TFC and Canadian championship and MLS play, which I think was a big confidence boost. Uh, but then, you know, lost three, nil FC Cincinnati lost New York Red Bulls. And, and most recently a two, two draw their first draw of the season, actually with DC United uh, yeah, their underlying numbers not tremendous in MLS play. Like it's it's fifteen point four goals for twenty two point five goals against. So it's a negative seven point two differential. Uh, they've been slightly unlucky um, with a a negative nine goal different goal difference in in actual terms in MLS play. 
And to me, Alex, I think the big thing is, you know, only 15 goals scored, one per per match. Uh, that is just simply not going to get it done. We we talked about it when we previewed CF Montreal earlier this season for their MLS matchup. And it's just such such a young striker group, such an inexperienced attacking group. Uh, there's just a lot of work still to be done to f- find consistent play, right? I think that's that's a big thing for this. Other than Romel Kyoto, there's just uh, a real lack of uh, veteran heads in, in the attacking third for this Montreal team. So uh, I think there's a lot to like. I think it's just, uh, it feels like a work in progress still. And there've been so many changes for CF Montreal over the last 12, 18 months. Uh, I, this inconsistency is absolutely warranted, but it's also something for Vancouver where, they have to feel confident at home. It it does seem like they're very clearly the best Canadian team at the moment. And uh, I don't know, I just, yeah, gun, gun to my head. I, I, I would be hard to pick against them this upcoming Wednesday, Vancouver Whitecaps, that is. Especially at home, right? And, but look, this Montreal team, it's ultimately, I think all things considered, this is a, young team under a new coach that has lost some key players. And I think it's shown it with the wild inconsistencies that we've seen at their best. They didn't change their back line at all, really. Like Kamal Miller got traded, yes, but Gabriel Corbo is a more than capable replacement. You know, Joel Waterman and Rudy Camacho making up the rest of that back three. You got Victor Wanyama in the midfield. They've kept a lot of those components, especially defensively. They've tried to keep the same system as well. And that's shown at times, right? Jonathan Sirwa as well has been very good, slots in excellently, and that shows in the clean sheets and when they've been playing at their best. But on the flip side, they're very young in the attack, and especially Kyoto's struggle with injury and inconsistency. He's now out for up to eight weeks, which is a huge loss for, for Montreal, especially in this final. And Chinozo at four, up front, for example, player that gets in a great position, finishing is just a, a, a fight against all 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 possibilities for him it's just it is a tough go although he's heated up as of late Zanussi Ibrahim has had moments and flashes but hasn't really had much of a chance to get consistency you know Bryce Duke has been a nice addition uh you know Sean Rea has been also very inconsistent when he's been at his best he's shown why he was the CPL young player of the year but he's also you know battled with some inconsistencies especially off the ball uh for Hernan Lasada's liking Ariel Lasseter, to be fair, has been a very nice uh, addition for them up front, um, but he's been playing as more of a wing back. Matias Chouinier has been excellent, um, but he's been asked to play a lot of heavy minutes in midfield. So it's something where after that kind of run of goals and assists, it slowed down just a tad as uh, he's focused a bit more on his midfield uh, you know, play. So overall, this is a Montreal team where I think at their best because of their youth, you can't let them get the first goal. I think it's something where it's no coincidence. All their wins have kind of been clean sheets where you score the first goal, kind of go up one or two nil. You're cruising. Whereas it wasn't till DC this week where they go to DC, go down two nil and get a comeback for the most part, when they've given up a goal, they've just been, it's been curtains, right? That's a young group. It's they've struggled to, to chase after the games and have that resilience. So Ultimately, they are, you know they are what they are at this this stage. A, an inconsistent young team that has potential to hit another level. I just don't know when that's going to be. Might take some time for Hernan Lasado. Probably also some upgrades at certain positions. But 
overall, I think for, for the Whitecaps, you can look at that and know that, okay, if you can get the first goal, if you can put them under pressure, uh, that could be a game that works. But And they saw that as well when Montreal came here and Whitecaps won 5-0, put them under pressure. They got the red card. They got the early goal. Boom, you, you're, you're coasting. But also you can't let Montreal get in there and get an early goal and get comfortable because they're still – They've still got a lot of remnants from that team last year in those key defensive areas that you don't want to you don't want to have to play a Victor Wanyama when he's behind the ball and doing his thing or, you know, guys like Waterman and and Corbo and, and Camacho can do a job. Uh, you know, George Campbell as well when healthy. I've liked what I've seen from him as a trade acquisition. Um, so overall, this is a solid Montreal team, not the one of last year, of course, but uh, should still pose a good matchup for the Whitecaps. I think it's one where between TFC or Montreal, uh, you know, Montreal seems to be the more solid, well-put-together team of the two, which, as we know for the Whitecaps, if anything, that's what you want. Uh, or that's not what you want, sorry. Because if at least TFC, you'd almost like that wide-openness, chaoticness of a game like that. It's almost suited the Whitecaps, right? Like, you see Pacific, they allowed it to be chaotic, boom, they they pounced on that. Whereas, you know, Montreal, that, that structure uh, will be interesting to see how the Whitecaps fare. Yeah, I think the one thing for me I do like for the Whitecaps in this matchup is that when the Whitecaps are porous defensively, they're, you know, usually done in by like high quality clinical finishing. Some, you know, players who can really take advantage of those, they're given half a chance and they score. And, you know, you saw that with, with some really high quality players on, on Houston and on, on St. Louis. And I just don't know if CF Montreal with their injuries and just with the the current construction of their squad, if they have those clinical finishers, like if a if a Luis Martins fails to close down, if a Matias Laborda gets his positioning wrong, I, I don't know if the CF Montreal striker is going to convert that chance and, and knock it past Yoi Taco. So uh, I think that you know the the Whitecaps certainly in the driver's seat here. Alex, just to to wrap up the Whitecaps section of this podcast, and we'll just very quickly uh, say a word on the CPL and League One BC to wrap things up here, but uh, result predictions for these two upcoming matches. How do we see it going first against Sporting KC and then against CF Montreal uh, in the Canadian Championship and who takes home that hardware? Yeah, look, I think it's something where SKC home, Whitecaps should win. I think I've no qualms and saying that as the sirens ring out about my prediction so again take take of that what you will but uh i'd say skc at home that that should be a win yes white caps beating skc i think that's just something where the form that white caps at home have won a couple finally after that nil nil draw in colorado uh you know they took them getting it over the line against minnesota but all of a sudden it's three home wins in a row a chance to make it four uh would be huge for them and then as for the cup i think Look, it also is just the easy answer, but the Whitecaps are in better form in MLS. They've done, they've been very businesslike in the cup, especially under Vanny Sartini to get the job done. Whereas Montreal, so far, I mean, their journey in the first round, they beat Vaughn, yes, 2 0, but it was something where uh, you, you would have liked maybe to see them dominate a bit more than they did against, against uh, you know, League One Ontario side, then in the next round course they beat tfc in a very commanding performance and credit to that and then forge as well there were moments like forge really stuck around for for that first half uh you know and to be fair the whitecaps against york in that first half they also let york stick around so 
that's something where it's just the nature of the cup. It's the nature of these sorts of games. But because of all that, I'd say the Whitecaps also look this. This is their time to win a second cup in a row. They're really at a, they've ascended at the perfect time with, with all the turmoil at TFC and you know Montreal's rebuild. So may as well go finally get a back to back cup and uh, you know go to the Champions League again and learn what you learned last year and at least finally be able to take a core from a Champions League team in the back to back years. Yeah, I'm only going to disagree with you slightly. I don't know why, I just have a feeling like things have been going so well at home for this Vancouver Whitecaps team. I'm just going to say it's a draw against Sporting KC because they just might have a little a little eye ahead on the cup final. And I don't know, say it's going to be like a 1-1, 2-2 where you know, Sporting KC is able to grab a goal. But uh, I don't think that's the end of the world. I mean, obviously, you'd like to see them pick up full three points. But I'm, I'm also holding out hope here, Alex, at some point that the Whitecaps get a road win in MLS play. Man, it's been one day. It's been way too long. <laughs> Come on now. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I think that one way or another, it's going to be a good, uh, a good week for the Vancouver Whitecaps upcoming here. And that was a lot of Whitecaps chat, but uh, let's round out the show by first taking a quick little look at the CPL and then League One BC. And and you've got mentioned here, I mean, we'll, we'll almost do this in reverse order of what we have in the notes. It's the second edition of the BC Derby tonight. Uh, so obviously, you know, depends on when this goes out and when you're listening to the show, but uh, Vancouver FC hosting Pacific for the first time. Alex, I know you'll be there. Uh, Pacific off to a pretty solid start to the season, uh, doing doing well. Obviously, a little a little disappointed recently by that uh, tough result against the Whitecaps, and then uh, dropping points with a with the Wanderers finding a late equalizer recently. But now they've had the full week to sort of reset, get ready for this one. Uh, yeah, what are you expecting tonight? And uh, overall thoughts? Obviously, you're very much on the pulse of the Canadian Premier League. We're at the quarter mark. Uh, what have you made of the season so far? Yeah, I mean, for Pacific and Vancouver, it should be a good game, hopefully. I mean, you want a competitive derby match. Obviously, the first one was very competitive, nil-nil. Chances from both sides. Manny Apriso gets the win, shushes the fans. Boom, perfect. That's, that's a good derby game. All right, let's hope for something similar in this one. Uh, for Vancouver, it's the goals are simple and they kind of talked about it in their pre-game availabilities. They want to revenge. First of all, they want revenge for, uh, for, you know, Manny Aparicio shushing. It is a derby. They want to build that up. And I think that's, you want that. Honestly, you want to embrace that. It's something where these do, these games do matter, especially for the fans. So it's great to hear that the players are, are on the same page. Uh, and they also want to score. They've struggled to score just four goals this year. Uh, they've only scored more than one goal in a game once, and that also required a penalty for them to get that second goal. They've also been shut out in two straight home games. They have a pair of back-to-back nil-nil draws. They need goals, and they know that. It's something where, especially as a young club trying to bring in fans, you know, obviously the result against 5 uh, 5-0 against Ottawa wasn't going to help, but look, goals help. Even if you're losing 4-3, Fans are going to remember, like, oh, this team plays fun. They play on the front foot. They're going to score goals. That that will help. So goals is a mission for them, playing more attacking football and just overall getting that first home win and no better way to do that than a derby. 
As for Pacific, they're just rested and motivated. The, the Can- Canadian Championship week took a lot out of them. They had to travel to Valor and rotated their squad, had to leave Manny Aparicio at home as he dealt with a bit of a niggle and, you know, et cetera. And they ended up getting a 1-1 draw. All right, that's the road. That's fine. But then in the Halifax game, if this was fully rested Pacific, it feels like they don't fall off as much as they did in the second half where the wheels just completely went out and they gassed out and they admitted as much like, look, you could just tell that the energy of the Whitecaps game sapped everything out of them, the short turnaround, and they end up dropping a point. So it's our two points. So something for them now that they've got that chance to rest, they're going to come into this game very fired up, very motivated. Um, so for Vancouver, that's a tough challenge because as we've seen, when Pacific rolls through the gears, uh, there's not many teams right now in the CPL stopping them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I just want, you know, big picture notes. Like, I hope I hope the attendance, I hope the, the energy is really good out there because we have seen, uh, we talked about it, I think, on the last show, you know, the attendance dip a little bit out there in Langley uh, around the 2000 mark. And, I, you know, hopefully there's four or five K out there for this one because, uh, yeah, you want to see for the, the health of these clubs, for the health of that league, just develop this rivalry develop these marquee matchups and uh, i do think though it's going to be tough for vancouver uh, pacific's going to be be hungry for all three points in this one trying to kind of get their their form back on track and and with forge dropping points as well it's a it's a big opportunity to sort of cement themselves right up at the top of the table um any any other big picture kind of takeaways from the league obviously we touched on vancouver fc you know still kind of trying to find their identity, playing lots of players out of position, struggling with some absence and injuries, and Pacific, you know, just trying to to iron out whatever little kinks they have to, to be a top team in the CPL. But any any other surprises, uh, interesting storylines you've been monitoring with all your, your coverage of the league now that we're a quarter of the way in? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we'll, we'll try to dive into a few, and you can chip in, of course, if... Uh... I do know you keep an eye on it as well. It's nice for it's nice for you. You got the games actually at competent times versus MLS where everything is, you know, again, must be said a bit of a completely off topic note. But the thing that I'm really starting to be frustrated about with the MLS schedule is that it was fun early in the season when it was February and I had nothing better to do than just sit down and tuck in the six or seven MLS games a night. But man, it is rough now when you have a busy Saturday and you come home and you realize you have 13 games all to catch up versus, you know, obviously CPL being a smaller league, but it is nice. Like to this weekend, it's Friday. You get a game Friday. All right. Saturday, there's only two games. If you're busy Saturday, you can catch, it's easier to catch up two games than 13. And then, Oh, there's a game on Sunday as well. But uh, anyways, that's a bit of an aside. As for the CPL takeaways, look, uh, the big one is watch out for York. Quietly, York is now tied with Pacific, three points off first, and they started out very slow. The defensive injuries were a huge hindrance for them, um, but all of a sudden they're they're getting some minutes out of their defenders. Tas Mordekudis has, has been getting up to full speed, and he's been excellent. Roger Thompson is is playing again, which is always good given his injury history they look better when at least one of those two are in the lineup uh you know Paris G has been a revelation at the back it's, there's been a few others as well Matthew Baldissimo you know over from uh Pacific has continued to, to be a big 
add Jeremy Gagnon Laparez healthy in midfield. And that's all added up nicely because, look, this York team is very good offensively. The numbers have said that. They just can't finish. And, again, through seven or eight games now, the fact that Azaze Di Rosario and Brian Wright combined have zero goals despite up being up to like nine or ten big chances missed. Again, that's a market correction just waiting to happen. But the fact they've been able to score goals without those two firing, the fact that you got Mobubuli has missed half of the games with injury and is now back and and in the lineup, there's a lot to to like with this York team. Brem Sumaro has been a huge add. Usama Alou, uh, the underlying numbers are very kind to them offensively, as in that they should be scoring way more. Uh, really, if they can just get some defensive consistency, get some health uh, there, th- this looks like a team that that you know is the team that many saw in the preseason but hadn't seen. Uh, you know, it's a, there's a reason why York was kind of most people saw Forge number one after that, you know, take your pick of Pacific Cavalry, even Valor. But not many teams saw um, or, or sorry, every team saw York in that mix, if not right after Pacific and Cavalry. So for them to show their potential has been interesting. Otherwise, business as usual for Forge. No surprises there. Uh, the big two surprises on the flip side of it, uh, though, have been Cavalry and Halifax because Calvary they don't look like Calvary and that continues to be a bit of a question mark they're not playing with that usual Calvary spirit they're not holding on to leads they're not being tough to play against and that's just not what you're used to seeing and it's it's been interesting because arguably right now they have one of the best players if not the early MVP candidate he's you know Christian Jack obviously had him number one in his rankings of players in the CPL and you know I've been big excited uh, or I've been excited about what I saw about Moose Ali Moosey but despite that, they, you know, been struggling and been near the bottom of the table, kind of almost not wasting his performances. But yeah, they are kind of wasting his his form. So that's been a huge ask. As for the Wanderers, man, they play fun soccer. It'd be nice for them to just get some more goals to drop and and, and to get some wins because they do everything but win. They play well. They 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 get leads in games, and then they just something just doesn't click for them. You know, in these key moments and. It just feels like for them, obviously, you know, they're going to need some more goals to drop at key moments and to tighten the ship defensively. But it would just be nice to see them get a win, especially at home, because their crowds, you know, deserve it deserves more than some of these draws and losses they've had at home so far. Yeah, no, I think that's that's well covered. I I think I'm realizing now looking back on it that actually the way the York United performed against the Vancouver Whitecaps like looks a little bit better in retrospect and you know the fact that they did it without Mobabuli and then seeing the success that they were able to have in the subsequent weeks it's kind of like okay there's a like at the very least a competent middle of the table CPL team this season and you know at the start with the the ownership stuff and then they they didn't get off um, they had a couple tough matches to open the season it was like oh this could be really bad and they've They've turned it around since. And then the other thing I just say is that, you know, the, the big picture takeaway is how absolutely wide open this table still is because of all the draws, right? Like, so you've only got three <laughs> teams with more than one win for York United and Pacific. So the rest of that table, like one result is just going to flip everything. And even, even those, you know, York United and Pacific they're not really out of reach um, for any of those, any of the teams, you know, you look at Atletico and Wanderers down in seventh and eighth. And uh, there's things there with those teams that you go, Oh man, two wins in a row. 
and all of a sudden you're speaking very differently about the the potential the confidence level the the standing of those sides so um and, and i mean the same thing goes for vancouver fc i, I feel like they're their potential is maybe a little bit more capped. I feel like this is maybe just kind of who they're going to be this season, a team that kind of grinds out results and and tries to be disciplined. But uh, yeah, honestly, everyone else um, in the league, it's like, oh man, they go on a bit of a run just like York United has. And, and all of a sudden you could be speaking about them very differently. So I think that's, that's exciting. At this stage in the season, it feels like very little has been decided. We still don't know a lot about what things are going to look like come the end of the season other than I think Forge and Pacific are going to be there battling for it. It's just a question of uh, who else is going to emerge. You know, as you mentioned, can a cavalry um, find their identity again? Can Valor find some of last year's success? Can the Wanderers convert draws into wins? Can Atletico uh, get back to the success they had last season? There's there's lots of good storylines, but so many unanswered questions which i think is fantastic and ottawa it's the big biggest of them all what has happened to them i completely forgot to mention them you know last place i've looked frustratingly brilliant on one end beating vancouver 5-0 i'm looking just so fun to watch and on the other end they've also looked you know far off it at, at times and ultimately though what i think is nice is you look across the board of these eight games it feels like there isn't a team that you're looking like, ooh, like this team is, is struggling to keep up. Ooh, this team doesn't necessarily play at the pace of this level. Ooh, this team isn't tactically there. I think this has probably also been the best season in terms of just parity. Of course, you see it in the results, but also just in the performances. What I've liked watching is that, of course, Pacific and Forge, they're remarkably consistent. I think that's why they're the two champions in this league's history. You know, that's why they're usually near at the top. But it's been nice to see that, you know, teams have bounced back. Teams are pushing. Teams like Halifax are going to forge and playing without fear and wanting to hold the ball. Whereas in past years, they might have just gone, you know, just been like, please don't hurt us and we'll try to get something out of this game and go from there. And, you know, I think that's that's been nice to see that there's been – it just feels like there's so much more of a tactical chess match week in and week out is what I'd say. It's like you, there's more of this recognition of – okay, like you're going up against this team. Let's at least try to adjust to them. Let's play our game and see what happens. And I think it's led to these more, you know, the more draws. And I guess it's frustrating on one hand because, of course, you would like to see there not be 48% of the games have draws or whatever the stat is. But also, I think that's going to, you know, that that reflects well on how intense and, and and tactical these games are. And, of course, as someone who who likes those things, I've I've enjoyed watching these games. Like, I've genuinely... You know, it's it's nice to tuck into some of these games and and just see sort of the intricacies. And, and I think as a result, the last point I'd say is on that. Yes, maybe it hasn't been the most eye pleasing to watch sometimes in terms of scores and if you like goals, etc. I think a lot of the young players in the league are benefiting from that. And I think it's no coincidence that you're seeing guy like Sean Young pop off at Pacific and really be able to take a step forward within this. You look at a guy like Matteo de Brienne at Valor. You know, you you look at some of these other guys. I like got Cavalry, lots of names of impressed, but like an Eric Cosbo, for example, straight out of you, you have Calgary's come in and you know really impressed me. And you look across the board. There's been a lot of young players thriving. I think that helps when there is a bit more structure, a bit more tactical 
edge to the to these games it's you know that sort of structure can can help young players progress and then when it kind of all clicks for them they can have performances like we've we've seen from some of these youngsters which is huge right because that's those are the players you want to do well those are the players that are gonna sell on of course in the future you see the interest for the likes of sean young and mateo de brianna per manuel veth uh, you know of, of, of transfer marks so that more of that would also be good to see yeah, I was going to say as a, as a final point on what I've noticed from the CPL so far this season that kind of feeds off your you know tactical complexity and maturity in the league is that I feel like less than any season so far in the, the league's history, it doesn't feel overly star-driven. Like it's not about, it's not about one player dictating everything mm. on a team. It's about the overall squads and their overall approach. And as you said, young players, depth contributors, like there's a lot more nuance to it, which I think is both like a gift and a curse because for the fan who's parachuting in for a match or just like checking out one CPL game a week, there's maybe less to just be like, Oh, well, you know, is it Jal Morelli in, in Halifax? And it's like, that's all you really know, but every match you're going to see him score a goal or an assist. Right. And like, this season, it's been a lot more about complete rosters, uh, complete performances, and and yeah, maybe not the uh, not like as many trademark moments, but at the same time, I think like a overall a much better level of football. So yeah, I don't know, I don't know what your thought is about that, like the way the league's trending, um, and is it is it better from like a marketing perspective to be star driven or long term is it just better to have better football and you know that that kind of stuff will come. Well, it's a debate, right? Like the stars, whether we like it or not, put butts in seats, right? Like it's David Beckham's going to be putting seats in over, say, if you're using an example from that team versus, I don't know, like an Alan Gordon or some of these other names, although Alan Gordon's a bad example because some of the goals he scored, but you know, that's all, all that to say, right? Like there's certain players that are just going to naturally put bums in seats. So it is a good point, but on the flip side of it, I guess this from the CPL's perspective it showed the aspect of having like a flat cap isn't that the the cap obviously it's not say enormous by by any means um but it's a flat cap right you have to spend between whatever it is 600 700,000 and 1.3 million 1.2 million yeah, whatever it is at the top end and that's the cap there's no dps there's no like complications where you have a player come in who's making like three times the entire roster like you'd see in MLS and I think because of that, it allows more young players to shine. Why? Because when you have a flat cap, you have to make use of every dollar. You can't just take a huge punt on a DP. And be like, oh, he's going to, you know, you pay all this money. He counts like nothing on the cap. If you spend 40% of your cap on a one player and that player underperforms, you will suffer. That's the reality of, you know, you see that a lot in leagues like, say, well, the NHL, for example, you watch the NHL. You, you know, if you're going to overpay on your first liners and they don't execute, that's just eating up your ability to to spend on elsewhere in the roster. Whereas teams that get your your cheap fourth liners, third liners, second liners on bargain deals do well. And I think that helps the young players in particular, because if you're coaches and maybe you spend a little more at the top, you need your your, your young players coming in. Uh, out of your 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 you know local areas and et cetera and producing and that's why a guy like a Sean Young's been able to blossom over the years as Pacific sold players on and why some of these guys step up and I think it it shows the benefit of a cap system like that which many people are calling in M- for an MLS right like re- raise the cap in MLS make it like a twelve million floor and 
30 million ceiling and let teams just rip so that you can overall balance your squad. Cause I think overall it, it really the biggest beneficiaries of that are the players at the bottom end of your roster. And yeah, that's not as sexy as the stars, but overall, as we've seen in, at the top levels of soccer, look, it's not going to be, you know, this is, you know, it sounds wild to say at first, it's not going to be your De Bruyne's, it's not going to be your, like, it's not going to be these top level players on teams. Like I'm trying to think of other examples, your Lewandowski's, your Benzema's that are going to single-handedly win games. Yes. They're going to, they're going to help your, your Vinicius's. You could go whoever you want at the top level. Now it's because, you know, teams like Man City, when they're winning, it's because they're deep outfits. Right. And, and I think in the CPL, it's nice to see obviously very different scale, but that because of the the roster build models that for a York, for example, a mobile bully at the top end is just as important as, you know, guys like Paris G, Max Ferrari, you know, M- Matthew Baldissimo, uh, Brem Sumaro, guys who might not be the stars, so to speak, but are important to, to build a balanced team. And last one on all this, the, the nice thing is about a non-DP si- situation, it must be said, Look, DP slots only get filled on forwards and midfielders, whether we like to admit it or not. So by not having a system like that, it does feel like the the, the CPL's quality of defending is a little more consistent than MLS just because there isn't a huge chasm between your these former European Cup 50 goal scorers and then guys who are just fresh out of college trying to trying to play like you sometimes see in MLS. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's kind of what I was thinking, but good to good to see that confirmed. And I think then overall too, maybe it's you go through this natural evolution, right? And I think MLS has almost gone through the same where you start out with the college youngsters and star players, then you gradually sort of shift towards maybe there aren't a ton of star players, and then the overall quality of the league is improved, and now you just have like a great depth of talent and you have star players. And so I feel like the CPL is going through this same evolution where right now they're just sort of rounding out these teams, increasing the standard of football in the league. And then we'll get to a point where even bigger stars will come into the league and they'll have an impact as well. So I think it's it's all good in the long run. It's just interesting to see the, the ebbs and flows, the changes in style, the changes in uh, the way the league looks on a on a week to week basis. But uh, speaking of the way a league well, looks I'll, on a week to week basis, okay, we're we're gonna keep going. All, all I'll say is em- emptying the notebook on this. Last point on that. That's where you know now is the time to make some some big moves to push that. I think, for example, yeah. it's it, I think if you're if you're CPL teams, everything in the power, even if they might not consider it right away, has to be done to sign players that have just been released, like Daniel Henry. David Weatherspoon, Theo Bear as well to an get, extent. Get, Tom, get Thomas Hassall in on a loan. Thomas Hassall, you know, some of these guys who, you know, may, I think that's also another step where especially you can get Canadians as well. So people recognize that. Like Weatherspoon played at a World Cup. Daniel Henry is a huge part of the national team. You know, Theo Bear obviously scored uh, those goals in MLS and will, you know, be a recognizable name from from the, the you know, his time at the Whitecaps. That is also another step to take where um, I just look how big uh, Magic Card James was for a four. It's like that's a national team level player and he's immediately helped the standard of an already very good York team. And, you know, there's examples as well, like retaining an Easton Ongaro, getting him back to the league after he left. Obviously, it's something where 
you feel for the player because you want them to make that next step up. And, you know, you had that chance with the Whitecaps, but also ultimately that's the challenge for, for a young selling league is, you know, you want to keep players as, as, as awesome as it is to sell guys on. You also do want to keep some of them, right? Like think of your Manny Aparicios, think of your Ollie Bassett's. I mean, if those guys left, like good for them and you'd love to see them make that step up. But if you keep them around and they end up dominating the league for four or five, six years, that sets the standard that, Team players around the league that join that or that are young or so they're like okay i have to be at that level right and uh, that's also a balance they'll have to face and adding guys like a weatherspoon or a henry or a barrel in the uh increase that so that was just my last thought because you mentioned the stars and, and and something and it's something i genuinely have been thinking of this week with weatherspoon as soon as weatherspoon's released i'm like yeah he might stay in scotland but i a, a player who was at the world cup like imagine what kind of pull that would be uh, for for a CPL team if they're able to make that work, but uh, before I cut, Sam got cut off. Obviously, he was going to dive into the league in its second season. Obviously, that is League One BC, and man, it's been fun. It's been fun this year, especially on the men's side. Where, my goodness, if you want to talk about parody, I think uh, this is the the textbook definition of parody on the women's side. A little less so, uh, you know. We've seen some usual suspects kind of leading the way. Obviously, that being white caps not some what um bit of a surprise face though and in unity's really stepped up altitude as well uh you know rovers slowed down uh, slowed down a bit and you feel like they're going to heat up especially as they get some players in from their college seasons as for the men though it's three points this is absurd eight team league there's three points between first and seventh and even last place altitude is still very much in the mix um just what is it five points off but still with so many games to play you play everyone still so you can make up ground very easily i mean sam league one bc seems to be an entertaining uh certainly title uh, race for top four with the new playoff format and just overall been some good games absolutely i mean the thing that stands out to me you already kind of mentioned it but unity on both the men's and women's sides right like they've turned into turned into a top program which is at least so far, you know, the margins, especially in the men's side, were really, really small. Uh, but that's cool to see. And uh, TSS Rovers, I mean, I think this was kind of expected. A lot of players coming back from college and sort of they, they knew they were going to have a tough start. But both TSS sides, not the uh, not the strongest start um, so far. But uh, again, you know, there's there's a lot of time uh, to make that up. That being said, I mean, it really has been not somewhat unity and Whitecaps FC women on, on that side that have distinguished themselves, both in terms of goal difference and uh, end points in the standings. And then on the men's side, uh, big shout out to the Island uh, Highlanders doing their thing so far, um, you know, and, and still uh, still so much, uh, so much to be decided there. And, uh, and I was talking to you before the show, Alex. I mean, even Altitude, like, yeah, they're winless and they're sitting down there with two points and a lot of ground to make up. But they haven't been playing bad football. Like, these these matches have been tight. Um, it's just been consistently entertaining from from when I've been able to jump in and see a stream or uh, or catch highlights and stuff like that. It's uh, It's been fantastic. I've really been enjoying it year two of league one bc and uh yeah we'll be watching out for for more to come yeah and altitude's about to get a swath of games at kinsman they've have only played one or two games at home and obviously that beautiful grass is a huge uh advantage for them so 
be curious to see because the men's team as well had a similarly slow start and really pulled it back last year. I think now with this new format where it's four teams making a playoffs and then a semifinal and a final leaves the door open a bit more where, you know, I mean, in the men's division doesn't really matter because it's so close, but certainly in the women's division as well, where you look and you see, yeah, there's a few teams pulling away at the top and, and not somewhat unity and white caps, but you know, even out of course, altitude and fourth with nine, then I don't know all those teams with four and three and zero like that, that ground can quickly be made up as we've seen, especially with the schedule and the fact that you play every team twice. So you can kind of make up the the ground in that regard. So curious to see, you know, the schedule does slow down a bit now. It feels like after such a hectic start of, you know, the, the league barely kicked off it, you know, a month ago and already you, you kind of rolled through uh, the just been matches week in, week out, some double headers on the weekends as well. So going to be curious to see how things level out and you know some lots of lots of fun games on the docket as well so again if you're if you're able to get around to some of these these games like there's some of them have been timed relatively nicely like uh last weekend for example there was a highlanders double header in the afternoon and then there was a pacific game at night which you easily easily could have hit all three um there's a few instances where you can you know go to a double header of league one and go to a white caps game or or ditto you know with vancouver fc etc so like it's something where genuinely um it's it's quite easy uh to to get out and and, and support these sorts of games if you've of course got the time it's busy in the summer so this weekend just to keep an eye out not some watt hosts altitude at thunderbird stadium that should be a good one rovers host rivers uh, Swan guard. So that's also great given uh, the Rovers at home was always fun. Uh, meanwhile, the Highlanders host the Whitecaps on Sunday, uh, what should be a good game, especially on the women's uh, or sorry, on the men's side, that is where it's wide open. Uh, and even on the women's side, uh, 